you can let go of the Bible quite a bit and God's still there if you want God. Here's a place where I was finally allowed to go to the table. It's been very liberating and so rewarding to be around other people that have the same goal and to know like there is a movement of healing that is happening. and correspondence about spiritual de- and reconstruction. Season 3, Episode 3, The Safest Place. Hey everyone, it's Kevin, and welcome to another episode. This particular episode is one that I don't want to mess with the flow of once it gets going, not even for concluding thoughts, so I'll get the announcements and stuff done up front, and then we'll let it do its thing. First, my new remixes of our producer Derek's Fingers Crossed album, which we used to score season one and much of season two, are going up each Friday at our Patreon. I'm calling them pod mixes because they're remixed in a way which kind of evokes how they've been used on the podcast, so think sparse, ambient, haunting. It's pretty cool. You can check out our Patreon for those, as well as many other bonus episodes, conversations, and interviews which are only available there. The score for this episode, and the name of this episode, is based on Derek's song The Safest Place, which is the third track on his new album Targets. You can check out DerekWeb.com for more music and all things D-Web. Also, at some point in this episode, you will hear a portion of You Are Your Own, written and read by our producer Jamie. Check out that work in its entirety at JamieLeeFinch.com. Okay, this episode is an examination, a meditation, a rumination on that incredible sense you get when love leads you to a newfound sense of peace and rest. There's a particular contentment, I think, that comes in falling in love again, in dreaming again, in hoping again, and in our moments of rediscovered innocence, or in our informed and yet defiant idealism against all odds. In this season, which we've devoted to reconstruction, this episode is a conversation I had with someone who, like everyone else, is reconstructing in her own way, and I shouldn't spoil it, but I'll say this. Whatever suffering we endure, there's always a chance that we might shut down to protect ourselves and avoid further pain, which is natural. And broadly to the themes of this week, any vulnerability that we can show to the people or institutions or whatever else caused us trauma is tough. But as we reconstruct life on the other side of grief and loss and tremendous shifts in perspective, there is real safety to be found in the new things we love. It's almost a kind of resurrection where you're armed with all you've experienced and everything you've learned, but open to something new and beautiful. So all that said, let's get into this week's conversation.
How's it going? Good. How are you doing today? I'm doing excellent. of a wild story um, and I usually forget how wild it is until I tell it to people and then their jaws drop and I'm like oh right this isn't normal mm. <laughs> so my birth mother she was 13 when she got pregnant with me mm. and she had me when she was 14 and she came from a pretty broken home her father was in prison and her mother was a drug addict and so I was kind of born into that. And we think that my father might have been one of my grandmother's boyfriends. Um, just speculation, because she had a lot of them in and out of the house. When I was about two years old, my grandmother left my birth mom and I and just went off to Las Vegas and just like abandoned us. <laughs> So we ended up in the foster care system. We were in and out of several group homes, which are, at least we're in the 90s, probably still are today, um, very overpopulated and not enough staff, a really kind of just not a great place for kids to be. And we had a relationship with this couple that had volunteered at an after-school teenage mom program. And so they knew us before we went into the foster care system. And once we went in, they made a point to visit us every weekend. And eventually they became our foster parents and took us in. Like, their whole point was basically to give my birth mom a chance at life. And shortly after they became our foster parents, my birth grandmother, who was a drug addict, also schizophrenic, took me and my birth mom for a day visitation and skipped the state, went, we were in California, went to Washington state and left me there and returned to California with my birth mom, but without me. And I was still two years old at this time. Where did she leave you? Um, in Washington state with some distant relatives, like a third or fourth cousin. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> and they were kind of like, what the fuck? We have a two-year-old here. And luckily, they weren't like bad people. And they did the right thing and dropped me off at a hospital. And so social services were able to pick me up from there and return me to my parents. Well, my adopt my what would be my adoptive parents, but were my foster parents at the time. Mm-hmm. So I kind of got used to things being very unstable for me. So it was kind of just like another thing to add on to the list of inconsistencies throughout my childhood. Mm. Um, so we have returned and maybe like a year or two goes by and my birth mother starts getting into heroin. And my um, <clears throat> foster parents, they find heroin needles in her room which happened to be my room as well 
And they're like, that's not okay. Like, you can't be doing that here. And they put her into a rehab, which she ran away from. And she ended up going into, like, prostitution and law, really heavy, heavy-duty drug addiction. My parents would visit her in and out of jail. It was really, really sad just to see. She was given a lot of opportunities, and she threw them out, threw them out because mm-hmm. of the, the disease of addiction. Mm-hmm. And it made it hard. My parents went through the process of adopting me, but she wouldn't show up to any of the court appointments. So it made it an even longer process than it needed to be. Mm. So it was when I was around seven years old that the adoption papers finally went through. And shortly after, like a few months later, we got a phone call from a hospital that my birth mother had a heroin overdose. Mm. And my parents turned to me and they They knew it was one of those things that if they didn't give me an option, I would regret it one day. So they kind of explained to me like what a heroin overdose is, what a coma is, and that she might be dying. And so they said, it's up to you, but would you like to go and see her? Because this might be goodbye. And so at seven years old, I was given this choice to either not go and she possibly die or me go and get a chance to like have whatever kind of closure a seven-year-old can have and so I chose to go see her and I was very much an adult in a little little child's body I was very mature for my age and really emotionally composed for what the situation was so I went um I still remember like the smell of the hospital and uh, the feel of it and just She had, like, machines attached to her, and she was lying there, lifeless. And I turned to her, and I was seven years old. No one had told me to do this. I grabbed her hand, and I just whispered. I was like, I forgive you. We thought that was going to be the end, but it wasn't. She actually ended up coming out of the coma, but she was severely mentally handicapped. And so she was put into a brain rehab center where she had to learn how to walk and to talk and to eat again and all the basic functions. And she was very much like a child in her, like probably the same age that I was at that time Mm. in mental comprehension. So she actually ended up coming and living with us for a while, but she ended up having a lot of violent outbursts. And so my parents had to put her into a center. And then her birth mother found out about that, wasn't cool with that, and took my parents to court and got custody of her. And by the time that was done, I was around 11 years old. And that was the last time that I saw her. In all of that, at what point Mm -hmm. is faith introduced to the equation? Were you kind of a religious kid from day one or? Yeah, well, my foster parents were fundamentalists or 
are fundamentalists. And so they definitely brought religion into it from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. So I would go to church with them from a very, very young age. And I'm not sure like if this is just how they interpreted things or this was actually what was going on. But they said that I would talk about how there was a presence or like what they thought was a, de- a deity with me. Like I would, they would say that I would always talk about something that was there with me, protecting me when I was like in these like crazy situations mm. and that they would listen to a lot of sermons and Bible studies, like in their car and that I at like age three or four would have like theological conversations with them about the concepts. Hmm. So I was always incredibly like spiritually minded, mm-hmm. even I think before they introduced it, just with something that made sense to me. Mm-hmm. They had always said that it was because of their faith that they became foster parents, that they believed in like taking care of, you know, the orphan and the widow mm-hmm. kind of thing. And My parents also chose, I think, because of that culture to homeschool me during that time. So I spent most of my time with adults that were Christian or with other homeschooled children that were also very Christian. (laughs) So it sounds like you were you were fully in it. Yes. (laughs) Uh, When did uh, how long did you carry that the fundamentalist aspect of it with you? Oh, for a while. So when I was around 12 years old, my parents separated um, because my foster father, then later adopted father, he had some like anger issues related to alcoholism Mm -hmm. and my mom kicked him out. So at that same time, my mom and I started attending Calvary Chapel, which is where my parents had originally like became Christians a part of. Mm-hmm. And they are, the joke is, is that they're a non-denominational denomination. Right. Um, they, yeah. <laughs> and it's totally a joke if for anyone who's going there with their eyes open. Yes, exactly. You know, you know that's where I came out of too, right? Did you oh, know that? Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. So you, you understand. <laughs> yeah. I was, a, I was a Calvary pastor, multiple uncles, family members that, yeah. that's like my parents both became Christian there in uh, Costa Mesa. Wow. Yep. So I was full into that culture. I, at 12 years old, as I was like coming into puberty, like the way I dressed was really monitored. They had multiple Bible studies every week. I was a part of, I went to youth group, which I was the kind of homeschool kid that I wasn't allowed to go anywhere if my parents weren't there. So my mom went to youth group with me. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah. And It was kind of like this nucleus of I wasn't really exposed to other beliefs or other narratives. I was given this, this is what truth is, and you don't question it. And so I believed it because that's the only thing I'd ever really been exposed to. And I like, I talk about this now, that it was kind of like I had a trauma bond with Jesus is kind of like how I phrase it. I like that. I mean, I don't because, like that, but I like that <laughs> articulate. Yeah. I like that. Because of what I had gone through as a child, I was not given therapy to process all of that loss that I went through. And even like the loss of my dad at 12 years old, leaving the home. The only thing that I was given was Jesus, which could have been really good. And in some ways was, but 
in a lot of ways was like the only tool that I had to deal with some really, really, really hard things that you kind of need more language to be able to understand and to process. So like I held on to Jesus really, really tightly because it's from the language I was given. This is why I was saved. This is why I'm okay. Like I was plucked from a life of, you know, the same as my birth moms because Jesus saw fit to redeem me. And so there was a lot of like pressure and a lot of guilt there and a lot of like, I have to be this perfect Christian girl because I, you who are saved for much a lot kind of deal. Yeah. So like I carry that with me. Well, I'm 27 now. So probably until I was about 20 was when I first started like the process of unpacking all of that. Mm. I finally got exposed other beliefs. So when I was about 17 years old, my mom kind of loosened her rein from me. And I don't know if it was just because she was getting tired of constant sheltering, <laughs> but she kind of loosened her rein. And I started to compete in West Coast Swing Dance, which mm. is was the first like non-Christian, non-homeschooled world I had really been exposed to. Mm-hmm. So at these like competitions, you meet people from all over the world. And all manner of beliefs and people partied at these things. People drank like I didn't participate in that because I was terrified. But (laughs) I (laughs) was exposed to it for the first time. Mm -hmm. And like I also started to be around like queer people Mm -hmm. for the first time in my life. And so like it exposed me and opened me up to like the fact that there is more to the world than what I was presented with. And so I really started to like question things and started to unpack a little bit but it wasn't until I actually started attending the local community college Mm -hmm. where I was really forced to face what I believed to be the inconsistencies that my combination of my homeschooled education and my fundamentalist religious upbringing gave me Mm. like I I was taking an English class and one of the professors is was a lesbian is a lesbian Mm -hmm. and it was the first person i'd ever encountered that was like and she was one of the most loving people i've ever met in my life and she saw something in me because i honestly was not sure if i was smart enough to be in school because i was a little behind in some areas because of the homeschooling and some learning difficulties i had a lot of foster kids have a lot of learning disabilities because their brains are not formulated quite the same. And I also had a lot of health problems. I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia and endometriosis, which are both really severe chronic pain conditions. Mm-hmm. And so like, I didn't know like if I was going to be able to do so and think I was smart enough or healthy enough. And this professor, she saw something in me and she was like, I think that there's something unique and special about you. And I would really love for you to be my TA. And so she took me under her wing and her main thing is queer studies. So I was exposed to the first time in my life, this like diversity of thought and this like understanding of social justice and what liberating different communities, what that means and what being an activist means. Like, honestly, the only activist I'd ever been exposed to up until that point was Martin Luther King. Mm. 
And I was given a very whitewashed interpretation of him. Mm-hmm. And so, like, being at this school, like, I was suddenly open to so much. And it was a very liberal, liberal-leaning school. So, like, a complete disorienting of me. There was so much cognitive dissonance happening. Mm. And I kind of just, like, found myself being really depressed really just like angry and hard at the church that I was at that time was a different Calvary chapel than the one I grew up in, but it was still Calvary chapel. One of my friends who I had grown up with, whose dad was the pastor of that church came out as that he was gay, which everyone had known, but now it was out. Mm -hmm. And the way that he was treated was absolutely appalling. Mm -hmm. And the moment for me that was kind of just like, the last straw. At this point, I'd still been going to church. I didn't really want to be there. But I lived with my parents and I thought it was like I needed to go. Mm-hmm. And they had made us sign this thing, which I'm sure you're familiar with from Calvary Chapel, because I was working in the children's ministry of saying that I agreed 100% with their doctrine. Yeah. And I wrote on there that I didn't. And I was like, as I was writing, I was like, I can't lie. Like, I can't do it. And so I wrote it down and they pulled me aside and had a meeting. The children's ministry pastor and his wife pulled me aside because God forbid a man have a meeting with a woman one-on-one. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they're really big on that. Oh, yeah. So they pulled me aside. I don't think I'd ever met his wife before in my life. And they pulled me aside and they don't bring up the document that I had filled out. But they say, we're worried about you. I'm like, great. And then they go on to say, it's like, we've been seeing your interactions on Facebook. And they mentioned two people, one of them being the pastor's son who came out as gay. Like, I, that I was supportive of his gay agenda. And then mm. secondly, there's this other gentleman who was older who had left the church to support the son that had come out. Um, that I was interacting with them on Facebook and they were worried that this was literal language that they used, the conspiracy that those two had to convince Christians that being gay was okay and that they feel like I was getting wrapped up in their conspiracy. And then they handed me a DVD talking about the evils of homosexuality. Right, like you didn't already know their position. Yeah, exactly. I hate so, like, that I, about every time that you change in anything. People don't just, it's like they're incapable of recognizing that as a change. Like they're always trying uh-huh. to convince, like as though you don't already know their position, as though you didn't hold it but yourself at some point. That's so annoying to me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just like, okay. And so like they hand this to me and at the time I was just so shut down. And I was still figuring things out for myself on so many levels. So I just didn't, like, I was just, like, completely just unresponsive that whole meeting. And I left, and I just remember thinking, like, I don't think I can do this. Like, I don't think I can do this Christianity thing anymore. And at that point, it was like, it wasn't that I let go of God or even Jesus, but I let go of the idea of Christianity, like, Mm. almost completely. And I was just really just struggling with that. And I was really, really depressed, uh, lonely, and just like, because that was the only kind of community that I had really ever known or had. 
And um, it's really, when you first go through that, it's it's really hard and awful. And so I was about 20, 21 at that time, I believe. And then one summer, this is when I was 22, I was still really depressed and not sure what the heck was going on with my life. And I remember just being like, okay, God, like, if you are there, I want you to show up because I can't, I can't live like this anymore, but I also can't go back to what I had before. And I had this incredibly mystical type of experience where I was like, I can't, I still to this day can't quite explain what I experienced but it was just like something in me turned on, like a light turned on. And I felt the presence of the divine with me. Oh, it's my favorite face. It's the safest place for my heart, for my heart. Losing a former faith story means losing the meaning-making method by which a person made sense of their life and the world around them. For former evangelicals, the primary difficulty is the struggle to consider what it would be like to have an authentic and healthy spirituality, as they are fearful of getting trapped in an alternative authoritarian environment. But it is impossible to live without any meaning, structure, story, or purpose, however, and so it is vitally important to allow this part to heal slowly over time. So how do people on the path to healing and freedom reclaim their feelings, release their emotions, discover an authentic spirituality, and connect with their inner world after being told for so long that all of those things were either off-limits or not possible? One, if not the most important way, is by seeking communal and or professional support. Spaces, places, and relationships that help to establish a sense of personal safety and belonging. This looks different for everyone as people have varying needs because everyone's body internalizes traumatic experiences in different ways. It may mean engaging with various trauma healing modalities with the professional. It could be somatic techniques for some, mindfulness exercises for some, physical healing for some, or quite possibly a combination of all. It could also simply mean locating a community of people who have been through the same experience. We're melting down metals and stones like we were the first ones. We're putting up neon
I started going to a church again that was definitely more progressive than Calvary Chapel. And that was like a big step for me because mm-hmm. like, I didn't even know that those kind of church, like anything but Calvary Chapel really existed. Mm-hmm. Like that bubble was so like all encompassing, but it was still pretty conservative. I look back on that. And at the time, I think it was a good transition for me. Mm-hmm. Like I've I met such, such loving and committed people that really helped me heal from a lot of the wounds that I had from my experience with the kind of the more extreme fundamentalism. Like mm-hmm. it just kind of came to a point where I outgrew it. During my time there, I was doing a lot of seeking out of what it was that I truly believed. And finally having a chance to be more academic about my approach to the Bible and of history. And um, I was getting my undergrad degree in English literature at the time, which is, at least in California, of probably one of the most liberal degrees that you can get. Mm-hmm. It's pretty much like almost the same as being like a gender or like a queer studies degree, because that's kind of what you focus on most of the time. Mm-hmm. And so this time, like I kind of privately or only with people that I knew it was safe for me to talk about it would talk about like some pretty radical, more leftist approaches to Christianity, approaches to beliefs, more universalist in general. And one day I was realizing that like, I think that I want to be a pastor. Mm. And like, I think that God's calling me to that. And I was like, oh my God, I don't know what to do with that because that pretty much means leaving Sonoma County behind and understanding that a lot of relationships that I have are just not going to exist anymore. I can no longer be quiet about my beliefs Mm -hmm. on these matters. And it's going to cause a rift between me and a lot of communities that I am a part of. And between me and my parents, for sure. As one of my strongest memories was when I was about, I don't know, eight or nine years old, maybe 10 and at the time, this is right before my parents transitioned to Calvary Chapel, and we were at a covenant church. And that was definitely more progressive than they were. But at the time, it just was was the best for their family because it was more family-oriented church. And one day, the pastor's wife, who has a full master's degree in theology, was preaching the sermon, and my parents found that unacceptable. So they grabbed me, and they left the church. Hmm. Like they went back another Sunday, but they weren't going to sit through the sermon. And they made it clear to the pastor that they don't agree with that, blah, 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 that whole thing. So like, it was this really this inner battle for me of like, are you you into the Enneagram at all? Yeah, totally. Okay. I think, I think we actually, I saw it on your Instagram, but I think we're the same, similar. I'm a four wing three. All right. I'm a wing five, but still a four. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and so like authenticity is like really important to me. Really important. <laughs> really yeah. important. So like, I feel I like I don't care I'm how back. miserable it is as long as it's real. Yes. And so here I was like struggling so hard because I was not being my authentic self because I felt, I felt like I was going to lose so many relationships. And so like, it came to this point where I was like, and it makes sense now I know the Enneagram more that we go to that two place, which is people pleasing, like right. clinging on to them. 
And I'll I help you, there. but inside I'm a martyr. Yes. I, so I, that's what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Hardcore. And like God's like my interpretation of the divine was just like kept showing so clearly that this was the road that I had to take. Like I asked for clarity and the next day, like I prayed this, I was like, okay, God, this is what I'm supposed to do. I need some clarity. The next day, two friends of mine who are not Christian in any way, shape or form who have been living together for like five years. They're a couple that's in a long-term relationship, never talked about marriage ever. And out of the blue, they send me this text message and they're like, so we were just talking the other day and we were just thinking that if we ever get married, that um, we want you to officiate our wedding. Hmm. And I was like, oh, well, <laughs> that's a pretty clear message. Mm-hmm. That same day, like the same day, this girl from my youth group that I hadn't probably seen in like 10 years from my Calvary Chapel days sends me this direct message on Facebook and is like, so I was just thinking the other day, and I was like, if ever started a church, I would go. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> like that, when I was asking for clarity, I wasn't like expecting it to be like that clear. One night, I'm like into two bottles of wine with my best friend. I'm definitely a little tipsy, if not drunk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and. Her and I are just like sitting there. It's like late at night. And I just kind of burst into tears as one does when they're two bottles in. Um, <laughs> and I just turned to her and I was like, and this is my best friend who is grew up Catholic, but she's not super religious by any means. Mm-hmm. And I've always been able to talk to her about anything. And so I was just like, you know, like I'm feeling really discouraged right now because I know that this is what I'm supposed to do for my life, but Mm -hmm. I know that so many of the people in my life will not support it. And like, I'm in that unhealthy two space, right? So I'm like struggling so hard with like, I want to please these people, but I also need to be my authentic self. Right. And she turns to me and she says something that has been the most defining thing that anyone has ever said to me. She's like, but you're not making a church for them. You're making a church for the churchless. I got like chills in that moment. And and she, she turned to me and she was like, you know, like, I don't feel like at this point in my life, I can step into most churches because they're very judgmental and they're very harsh and they don't match my beliefs. But she's like, but I still want to talk to God. But when I'm with you, I feel like I'm at church. You make God accessible. Mm. And it was just like this moment of being like, I felt the divine moving in such a way that there are so many people that are really wanting to access something spiritual, but don't have a place to do that, mm-hmm. including my, including myself, really. And... After that summer, all of those things happened within a summer. And I was just like, okay, like I know what I'm supposed to do. And since then, like I've become involved with a lot of different communities that are seeking out the same things and are deconstructing and reconstructing everything and finding that there are hundreds upon hundreds of people that are in the same boat. Mm-hmm. And I now go to a church here and I'm in Pasadena now in Southern California attending seminary. Mm-hmm. 
And I'm at Fuller Theological Seminary, which is definitely a more conservative school than what I believe, but they give you a balanced academic approach to things. Mm-hmm. And you're, are you able to be kind of fully yourself yeah. and be cantankerous yeah. if you want to be? And Absolutely. People are really open to having conversations and they're okay with the fact that I'm like a universalist Christian and mm-hmm. um, they give us a really academic approach to the text. Like we learn how the Bible is not perfect. We learn about how there's a lot of inaccuracies and all of that here, which is so cool to be able to have that conversation with people. And when people freak out in my classes when they learn these things for the first time, I'm able to like sit there and talk with them and be like, you can let go of the Bible quite a bit and God's still there if you want God. Mm -hmm. And I previously chose a more conservative college because I wanted to be able to challenge things and I wanted to be in that environment. But I found a church in Pasadena called New Abbey um, that is this like beautiful community of like basically all people that used to be part of an evangelical church at one point and left. Mm -hmm. And there are people there that are agnostics, that are atheists, that are Buddhists, and a lot of people are that are still Christian. And it's like a pretty big queer community as well. Mm-hmm. And we have representation in the leadership and it's been the most healing, beautiful thing to be like, I remember I went there my first Sunday and I just broke into tears because I was just like, here's a place where I was finally allowed to go to the table. Mm-hmm. As a, a woman that was progressive and had kind of some out there beliefs compared to like, what a lot of mainstream Christians or fundamentalist Christians have. And that was okay and welcome in every way. Mm-hmm. And this has been really beautiful. And I'm actually now a part of their launch team for a church plant in North Hollywood. We're like in the baby, baby steps of it. And it only took a few months of me being at the church for them to like be like, when I expressed interest in helping out, they'd be like, absolutely. Well, I'd worked at my other church for like five years and mm-hmm. the most I could do was lead a children's ministry or like a worship night. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's very, it's been very liberating and yeah. so rewarding to be around other people that have the same goal and to know like that some, there is a movement of healing that is happening. Oh, we fell in love we broke our hearts and we fell in love again but there's nothing so sweet as a Beyond just, oh, I don't have to worry about what these people think because I'm going to help craft a community for mm-hmm. these people, but also remembering, I mean, you're crafting a community for yourself. Yeah. There needs to be a place where you can be fully you and fully mm-hmm. seen and appreciated for who you actually are. And it might be naive, but I tend to think these days that if I find something resonant, it's probably not just me, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and it's and I find so that's a true. good compass, like in the sense of, 
of maybe not externalizing, you know, I mean, because evangelical culture gets us doing that so much. And mm-hmm. and just thinking, well, if I find something beautiful here, there must be something beautiful about it by virtue of mm-hmm. the fact that I find something beautiful here, you know. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> the, the very, I mean, the last call I took, it's interesting because this is, this is two today, but we were talking about one of the greatest lessons that we learned as people coming out of that particular culture within Christianity was that if something moves you, let it move you. Mm-hmm. I mean, for me, that truly rescued me and beauty kind of changed my life in so many yes. ways. So as someone who's reconstructing within mm-hmm. the, the fold, so to speak, even yeah. uh, even if committed to the edge of the inside or whatever else we want to call it, um, <laughs> yeah. What are some other ideas or, or doctrinal positions you've reconstructed or put together that, that are different than what I know what? exactly how you grew up being taught? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I would say also how I interact with God, the language that I use. Because I think in my universalist approach to God is that in all religions, we're given an image or a piece of the divine. And the religion is just that interpretation and that language Mm -hmm. that we are given to approach that divine. And it's not that one is better than the other. Mm -hmm. Um, My approach to God has become more of like, I get along well with the concepts of like mystical Christianity, of choosing to sit in silence and being open to what might happen and calling God her or them has also been like eye-opening for me Mm -hmm. to think of God beyond just the terms that I was given. And I've found so much freedom in that. And even like I think of um, Julian of Norwich, which was one of like the 14th century early mystics, Mm -hmm. she would refer to Jesus as mother. And that was so revolutionary to me to think that that was happening a long, 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 long time ago. And that it's kind of making like a comeback in today's today's kind of fringes of progressive Christianity. Looking at God and just being like, like you're saying, like what I see is beautiful. What I, whatever I see that is good. I kind of, to like borrow some phrasing from Christianese of like, where's the fruit? Mm-hmm. Like, that yeah. is where the divine is. Like I am able to find God just in looking at a Van Gogh painting just as much as I sometimes more than reading the Bible or me praying. Because I think that oftentimes we're taught to be the ones talking at God or talking to God instead of just like just existing with the divine. And I mm-hmm. think we miss out on so much and it's very i think reflective of like western culture to kind of just constantly be going and moving and talking and doing mm-hmm. but to borrow kind of from more of the eastern approaches to christianity of just letting god be and letting yourself be mm. yeah in the sense of i am that i am that mm-hmm. pure pure present active being Yes, and also being okay with mystery of God and of the divine and of everything that's out there. The more that I am open and the more that I learn, I'm actually finding like the less that I really know. And that's 
used to be really scary. <laughs> mm-hmm. And now it's it's beautiful to me that there's so much mystery. And I think there's a lot of mystery to us as well, like to humanity and to our existence and our purpose. And it's like, we don't have to have the answers to everything. Mm-hmm. And there's freedom in that. Yeah, so much. And I was talking with someone the other day and this concept that's kind of been sticking out to me and it's within the framework of language that we've been given. But when we look at extremes of like, there's like extreme atheism, which is like, I am 100% sure that there is no God. And then there's extreme Christianity of like fundamentalism of this is the only way that we can look at God. I think if we were to really all be honest, none of us are 100% sure about the divine, mm-hmm. like in either direction. Right. Like if we were to all be really honest, even the most fundamentalist Christian or the most staunch atheist, there's a part of us that's a little agnostic. <laughs> there's this part of us that just does not know that we we cannot know. You just hope for things and you interpret what's in front of you and you hope that maybe this is somewhere close to the truth. <laughs> <laughs> you do your best to describe the way the light looks at that moment. Yeah, exactly. It's just like this, like a Emily Dickinson, the slant of light, you know. And we all, our experiences, change how we look at it. For all your deconstruction, for being someone mm-hmm. who was never able to let go of Jesus in that, what would you say is? the lesson you've learned that you cherish most now? Mm. Oh, that's a great. And I know that's a hard question because it's reaching over an entire life history and, Mm -hmm. you know, different paradigms you've subscribed to as a human, as a spiritual person. Um, Well, what stands out? No, I would say something that I've actually came across recently, which was in um, Nadia Bowles-Weber's newest book, Shameless. When she... I might be butchering this, but essentially what she's saying is, is that an ideology or a belief system should not be more important than individuals. Mm. And I think that's just such a game changer because that goes beyond conservative or liberal. Mm -hmm. That's talking about humanity. And I think that there's something there to just like the humanism of that. Like we need to, if we are saying that people are valuable, then we kind of need to act like it, you know, because that's something that's always been inconsistent with most Christian theologies. If we truly are going to be consistent, no matter what your beliefs are, people need to be more important. Individuals and their wellness should be the most important thing. Mm -hmm. And as someone who's wanting to be a pastor, that's crucial. I think if more pastors lived and acted with that mentality, churches would be these holy, sacred places where people, anyone can come to and find refuge and transformation. Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny, Derek has more than once um, described that as, you know, one of the most important things he's learned on the path Mm -hmm. is that ideas mattered to him more than people did. And that's something he's put aside, even as someone who wouldn't consider himself a Christian anymore. Yeah. What's interesting is I've seen him post about that multiple times now. And the the kickback Mm -hmm. has been from Christians. People that give him a hard time about saying that has have 
by and large been Christians, where yeah. people who have walked away from it, they seem to see the beauty in that idea. And so it is refreshing mm-hmm. to talk to someone who likes mm-hmm. that idea and remains a person of faith. Because <laughs> um, that's exactly the kind of discussion that needs to be had among mm-hmm. Christians where there's a safety there. Uh, yeah. I think for me, where I'm finding it challenging in the in the election of Donald Trump, I wonder if you've encountered this as well, but just kind <laughs> of experiencing the same sort of grief that Martin Luther King articulated so well in saying that ultimately it's the moderates who are more frustrating. Mm-hmm. Um, because I saw 81% of evangelicals enable this man. And then yeah. the majority of them I know, the kind of people I grew up around, who aren't particularly socially invested or political in any way, shape, or form, mm-hmm. um, they voted for him. And then they saw what a mess was instantly created in so many ways. And rather than really having anything to say about it. Like, I'm not talking about the diehard Trump supporter that's in every Facebook thread, but I'm t- <laughs> the majority of evangelicals who voted yeah. for him and then kind of wiped their hands off and acted like, well, we're not really political anyway. You know, our hope is in the Lord. Um, mm-hmm. That has proven to be the harder thing for me, like the bigger frustration in trying to embody what you said, which I believe, yes. but to live in it is hard when I see it's that so, so hard. much. We are all connected, and even if you become someone who's a universalist and, and don't think the heaven and hell equation is defining every yeah. conversation, there still is a very real sense in which our connection and our desire to see health and wholeness on this planet means that, you know, it's like, I may not need to get you to pray a sinner's prayer, and I may not be worried about your quote-unquote eternal destination, but I do think your ass needs to be saved right now. Like... <laughs> Yes. You know, and so yeah, I think I think that's a that's a delicate thing for a lot of people, especially since you don't always have the language to communicate that without without people Seeming thinking like you're trying to get them saved in the other sense. So. Right, exactly. It's more of like this like that spirit of Christ, that mm-hmm. that peaceful, loving, righteous and not in like the fundamentalist sense of it, but like stands up for what's just. Mm-hmm. Like, and that was a hard one for me. Like, I'm personally like dealing with the process of learning how to forgive now that I'm in this new context of Christianity. And I don't believe anymore that forgiveness is an instantaneous thing that you snap your fingers. Right. Yeah. I've forgiven you. And so now I'm dealing with that with a lot of people in my life. And forgiveness is a process. And so is learning how to like look at people in that cosmic Christ sense of there is goodness in all of us to an extent and it's capable of being resurrected. something that's been always really hard for me is that I'm incredibly, incredibly stubborn. Mm -hmm. So like, I don't like to be corrected. I don't like to be told what to do or where to go. Like I will have like a physical reaction to it. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's part of that is like sometimes like I'm going to have to set my sword down. Like sometimes like I'm going to have to admit that I was 
wrong about something. And I think that that's a process of reconstruction that's been really difficult is being able to own, I was really wrong about that. Mm-hmm. Or like, I have privilege that I still am working through that maybe I thought I worked through. Mm-hmm. And having to like be humble to the point where I'm like, I was wrong there. I think just learning that humility is been hard for me but good it goes back to that idea of like individuals um are more important than ideas but i think it also comes down to this like really wanting to be my own person and wanting to be independent and come up with my own unique approach to things and (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) is that Mm. sometimes sometimes maybe that road's already been paved and i just have to learn from someone and shut up (laughs) right to be at peace with not having come up with the novel unique thing (laughs) yeah i would just say like if anyone's in that process of trying to rebuild what it is that they believe whether that is with an idea of god or not understand that you never arrive (laughs) Mm -hmm. like there's never an end to this road and it can be hard when it's like you want there to be an end but it's just gonna keep going like once you think you have something figured out like something else is gonna pop up Mm -hmm. and you're gonna have to figure that one out and I think that's just it's the part of existence that I think fundamentalism had tried to rob us of Mm -hmm. Um, because it won't hold anything loosely yeah everything's static Exactly. Heels dug in. None of it stays the same. And I think the moment that we realize it, it's like free falling and it's terrifying. Mm -hmm. But then once you realize that that's just how humanity works and that's how existence works, you can kind of be gentle on yourself in that, like, (laughs) you're not going to have all the answers to all of these questions ever. Because guess what? More questions are going to pop up. (laughs) (laughs) They always do. They always do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much. I I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time taken to share in this space. And it's just, it's really meaningful to me. I know it will be to others. So thank you. Uh, Yeah, and thank you so much. I was so honored when you reached out um, to be able to share this journey with you all. It has been a pleasure and I look forward to talking to you some other time. Wonderful. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.